Chicago in a distant land. Good morning, everybody. This is Saturday Morning Tuesdays. I'm Austin. I'm Rory. I'm Andy. Hey, I got a, I got a question. It's not Tuesday. Oh, that's What's true. What's up with that? What's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I'll tell you why. So we're doing something interesting today. We are uh, back in the past. We recorded a interview with Michael Uslin from Dinosaurs, the showrunner creator of that program. <laughs> I bet. I think it's so funny to say Michael Uslin from Dinosaurs when he yeah, has such a also, different career that's so much and bigger. Currently, an Academy Award nomination for Joker. <laughs> Uh, Academy Award nominated friend of the show, uh, Michael Uslan. <laughs> right, um, right, right. Uh, but so uh, today we're doing a different interview. Uh, we are interviewing uh, a man named Jeff Klein, who was the executive producer and showrunner for Jackie Chan Adventures. Yeah. And uh, I was able to get him on the line because uh, I worked with Jeff uh, several years back on a small comics project for his comic book company, Darby Pop Publishing. Um, and so through that, I kind of got to know Jeff a little bit and, uh, I knew that he worked on Jackie Chan. And so I, I reached out and, uh, we had a really cool phone conversation. Yeah. We're doing, we're doing that time honored entertainment industry flex where we exploit our contacts <laughs> <laughs> and then tell our fans how we know them. Yeah. No, no, it's great. I love, yeah. I love that you, that you had an in and that, you know, we didn't have, you know, cause we, we, we basically just cold called Michael Uslin. So, <laughs> right, right. Uh, but, so but, gotta... uh, but we had an in here. So mm -hmm. you, know, you got Jeff on the line. We had you do this one. We, so, so you're not going to hear our voices during the interview content, but it's just awesome. Right. Um, yeah. And it's worth mentioning also, um, and cause it'll come up a little bit in the interview, but Jeff, uh, also worked on shows like extreme ghostbusters, uh, men in black, the series, which we also watched a little bit of, uh, mm -hmm. Godzilla, the series, Max Steel, Jackie Chan adventures, dragon tales, uh, mm. and then some Winnie the Pooh, some GI Joe, uh, several shows from the transformers world, uh, transformers prime kind of being the, the, the right. primary example of that. Yeah. The early two thousands one, I think, uh, right. That's, that's yeah, what I'm thinking. Yeah. Of. Mm -hmm. And so Jeff has done a ton of amazing work, uh, memorable work in the industry. And so he was a really cool resource, uh, to talk to about not just Jackie Chan, but kind of the, the animation world in general. So, uh, I think, uh, you'll really enjoy the interview. Um, and then yeah. we're gonna, we're gonna kind of jump in sort of here and there halfway. And at the end, uh, just to kind of reflect a little bit on on what he talked about so uh yeah. so don't be uh don't be afraid if you hear us come back in <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> you're not Jeff. okay all right here's the interview so uh before all of it i guess i just in general wanted to ask uh what do you remember about jackie chan adventures it being 20 years ago and all uh I'm I'm not going to remember a lot of the really specific things. The fans are much better at that than I am. Right. Um, but what I what I do remember is how much fun it was to make the show, how great Jackie was, how much I loved the creative team that I was working with. And in fact, over the 20 years since Jackie Chan, um, I've worked with an awful lot of them again on various shows. It's kind of the core team that, that uh, was built out of Sony has then traveled with me to other places, including uh, Hasbro, 
a few years ago to do a couple of different Transformers series in the G.I. Joe series. So um, a lot of a lot of really good memories. In fact, I was trying to think if I had some terrible memory of Jackie Chan and, and I've got the Jackie Chan Adventures and I've got bad memories of certain things, but really nothing associated with that show. That show was really just kind of a pleasure. Yeah. Well, it shows. It definitely shows. Um, and so now I know that the the term producer and executive producer can kind of mean a whole lot of things. And now what what largely was your role? So ultimately, my job is more of a is the showrunner. Um, but there isn't that title typically in animation. So you call it an executive producer. Um, I'm sort of ultimately the person in charge of everything. So I was there from the very beginning to sell the show. And I was the person who turned out the lights when it was all over. And in between, I supervised every bit of the creative. Ultimately, I was the final word on it. Um, you know, hired the crew, cast, all that sort of stuff. Obviously, in conjunction with networks and studio executives and my line producers and my other producers. Um, but there's a few executive producers on the show who are more either Jackie's management people, um, uh, you know, and weren't actually around day to day. The showrunner is the person who's ultimately there day to day. And that's true of whether it's a primetime show or a daytime kids show. Um, whatever the title, the showrunner is the, um, where the buck in theory stops. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, do you have, uh, anything? Uh, what do you really remember about creating the show, about actually sort of going from zero to having the pitch? So actually, the one of the nice things about Jackie Chan Adventures was um, it came to us already um, somewhat formed. There's a, there, there is a really talented TV writer, comic book dude, just all-around great guy named John Rogers, who, if I'm not mistaken, had actually been a stand-up at one point in his life. Um, and he had been working with Jackie and Jackie's, uh, especially his American reps, to come up with the concept for an animated series for Jackie. And um, my memory of it is that it grew out of um, sort of a, I think it may have even started with, with Jackie's American management, a, a gentleman named Brian Gersh, if I remember correctly. Um, who, you know, Jackie's desire to appeal to a younger audience in the States because he was well aware of the fact that he was getting older, it was getting harder to do some of those stunts. And he felt like if he could, if he could talk and I'm putting talk in quotation marks, but you can't see it, but if he could talk to a younger American audience, he could grow, he could, they could, they would grow with him in other words. So he, he could hang on to them longer, um, which ultimately was a really smart thing to do. And it, it gave him both a much bigger awareness in the States, but then also those, those kids who watched the show stayed fans of his for years and years. It was a really smart thing to do. Um, and when you're a cartoon, you never get older and you can do anything. So he could do the most incredible stunts, the stuff he couldn't even have done in, the, in his prime as a, as a movie actor. Um, but the, the pitch came in already with John, um, pretty well worked out as far as Jackie's an archaeologist and he's working, if I remember correctly, he's working with Captain Black and all that stuff was kind of laid out. John, uh, uh, Dwayne Capizzi and myself, was Dwayne on that point? It may have just been actually one of the, um, Columbia slash Sony executives, Tara Sorensen and I went around to pitch this. Um, John did the bulk of that work. I was there to chime in, but also as kind of the guarantor that whatever John was saying could actually become a show. Um, cause I'd been doing it for a while and had, had worked on a bunch of bigger franchises like men in black and Jumanji and extreme ghostbusters and that sort of stuff. 
Um, but John was a, is a, is a fantastic uh, pitcher. He's, you know, what you want in a room like that is a stand-up. And we went to a few different networks. And I guess in retrospect, not surprisingly, but at the time it shocked me, you know, there wasn't, it wasn't like people were lining up. Um, everybody really enjoyed the pitch, but Jackie wasn't that well known. There was a question about whether, you know, he's an adult and not a young adult at that time. Is he going to really appeal to kids, especially domestically? Um, but kids WB, specifically an executive named John Hardman, if I remember correctly, I think he was the one in the room, got it right away and made very clear that he wanted this. And he kind of became one of the people at kids WB who shepherded the show for the next five years. And, and in, it really helps to have that, that kind of fan right from the beginning or that person who, who gets it understands it and wants to make it happen because there's in the course of any series you do, whether it's again, live action, animation, kids, adults, doesn't matter. There's so many chances for it to, to die. Um, right, and it's right. not just because an audience isn't watching it. There's all kinds of reasons for it, either not to happen ever or to happen for just a little while or not to happen the way you want. Um, but we had, you know, we had a really strong champion in Jackie himself and his people. We had a network that really believed in it. Sony, I had done a lot of work with, great studio. So, again, it really was sort of teed up to succeed. And then I think the first person I recruited maybe was Dwayne Capizzi um, to be the head writer. Uh, and, oh, and I could be wrong. He may have actually been in the pitch. I may, have, I may have brought him in earlier. But I sort of kind of thinking maybe it was after Warner Brothers had said we're interested that we brought Dwayne in to flesh out what John had and help turn it more into a show. Um, Dwayne's sort of amazing and I brought Dwayne to do Transformers Prime, for example, you know, take some mythology. And Dwayne, I knew, was a fan of Jackie's movies and really a, a film aficionado in general. Um, and I knew Dwayne would do a deep dive and kind of figure out what can we take from the movies? What can we take from Jackie's, both his real persona and his filmic persona? Um, and how can we have fun with it in a way that provides plenty of Easter eggs for the audience who are already fans, but doesn't in any way um, either distract or scare off those who really had never been in Jackie's world before. That's awesome. Now, was any of this um, sort of trying to happen at the same time around the rush hour Shanghai noon? Uh, was that kind of part of the plan or the idea that Jackie's going to like really start to blow up in the U.S.? I I mean, you would know better than I. Of course, my instinct right now is to run to my computer and look up when rush hour came out. <laughs> uh, well, if you um, can't remember, then it probably wasn't like... You know, yeah, but I, that's I'm, I'm wondering if Rush Hour came out after the after the show. I think it was '98. I, I want to say it was '98. Maybe, maybe Rush Hour had happened, and the, but but the but the movie that followed hadn't yet. Right. So right. Jackie had Jackie had awareness in the states and um, was beginning to get a following, but it hadn't exploded yet. Right. Um, in the way that it ultimately would with the sequels and the Shanghai Noon. So that that sounds very possible. But honestly, I'm sure. If Rush Hour had come out and was already a hit, and I have no reason to believe that, that that isn't the way the chronology worked, I'm sure we were drafting off of that. I'm sure that was part of our sales pitch. But ultimately, we weren't pitching Rush Hour the movie. Right, which is so, great. So <laughs> Jackie Chan Adventures had to stand on its own. Yeah. Well, a lot of what we've been talking about in our enjoyment of the show was how this isn't, like you said, this isn't Rush Hour the movie. This isn't, uh, it doesn't have to be somebody who was a fan of a movie and every episode think they're getting more of that movie and sort of have to live in the shadow of some other, you know, cinematic uh, blockbuster. And this could kind of be its own thing. Yeah. Like it had to be its own thing um, because no matter how many people saw that movie, that audience 
in, in theory, you know, the, especially the younger part of that audience wasn't big enough to sustain a TV series. Yeah. You, know, you had to bring in new audience. Um, so, you know, as, as much awareness as a movie creates, uh, because of all the advertising involved and the fact that it's playing in screens across the country, um, you know, the, the numbers of people who see any particular movie, and again, the number of kids who saw Rush Hour would never have sustained the TV series for five years. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's interesting. Um, and you're yeah. right. Rush Hour, I just looked it up because I couldn't help myself. Rush Hour was 98 and Rush Hour 2 was 2001. Yeah. So we were drafting off the success, but well aware of the fact that it, you know, Jackie Chan Adventures needed to stand on its own. Yeah. I mean, it's, what was it like doing Men in Black, the series, you know, a children's cartoon from a PG 13 movie? So it's, that's one of the challenges of, um, of adapting, you know, IP. Um, sometimes it's, it, it comes with things that aren't necessarily, uh, perfect for the audience that you're redesigning the show for. Although my memory of Men in Black is there was very little in that movie that we had to adjust. I mean, that one is, was sort of a perfect TV series mm-hmm. <laughs> concept. Yeah. You know, funky aliens, funny aliens, gross aliens, rude aliens, um, <laughs> and two guys in the middle trying to deal with it all that. Yeah. I, I really don't remember too many, um, issues at all with that, but that's a case where that one obviously was just straight up continuation in some way of the adventures in the movie right. designed really to be a bridge between the first movie and whatever was going to come after it. Um, Sony's whole philosophy at that time with the kids shows was we'll have a successful movie like a Jumanji or a men in black. We'll create a kid series that will both expose the property to a newer, broader audience and potentially a younger audience that can then grow up with the franchise as the next movie comes out and the next one. It was really meant to be a bridge between features because it takes a few years to get a movie made, but you could get a series in the air within, you know, a year to 18 months. Excellent. Now into actually the production of Jackie Chan Adventures. Um, do you have any off the top of your head, any sort of general or fun anecdotes on the production during making the show? Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things um, that we talked about very early on was we wanted, we wanted, and this, I know the network wanted it, we wanted it, we wanted live action Jackie um, somewhere in there. But obviously he was very busy shooting his movies overseas and ultimately also his domestic ones. Um, so we weren't going to get a ton of time with him. If Whenever anyone asks, I will tell them that the three influences on my entire career are The Twilight Zone, Star Trek, and The Monkees. Mm. Um you know, Twilight Zone because you sort of taught you that you could deal with any anything and and do any sort of real issue as a metaphor through a lens of maybe it was science fiction or horror or thriller or whatever. Um, but it just nothing was sort of off limits, um, and that it could be really, really, really character based. The Star Trek to me is just like a perfect science fiction show. I'm on an adventure. I've got this triumvirate of different kinds of people who together are stronger than any one of them singly. And then the monkeys for me was about breaking the rules of television to some degree. Cause you know, one of the things I like best about the monkeys was in addition to being very funny and all the rest of it, every once in a while, they'd like walk off a set hmm. as part of the show and you'd <laughs> see them break through a wall literally. And what the monkeys used to do at the end of episodes that ran short was they would do a little Q and a with a couple of the actors and just have have somebody off camera ask them a question or two, probably Bob Rafelson um, uh, or, uh, or one of the other producers. Um, 
And I always thought that that was actually, I looked forward to those moments because I thought it was a little bit of a peek behind the curtain of, you know, of television and yeah. of monkeys in general. So that was, you know, pretty early on we decided um, if Jackie was up for it, and he was immediately up for it, honestly, he was up for just about anything, um, we would do that Q&A stuff right. and we'd actually solicit the questions from the audience. Um, and then I would fly to Hong Kong a couple of times to shoot those little live action. Oh, wow. So you uh, actually were flying to Hong Kong to do it. I actually flew a couple of times. Then one year he was shooting, I think, um, around the world in 80 days, maybe. If that times out. Yeah. Probably. I think it was around the world in 80 days. Yeah. And he was so busy with that. We couldn't do it. So we actually had a crew, um, that was somehow involved with that movie. They did it for us. Wow. Um, which worked out fine. It seemed like um, those segments are pretty heavily edited. Yeah. I mean, part, yes. Partial that is because we'd have to cut them to whatever time we had left mm. in the episode. So we'd right. let the episode storyline kind of play out however it needed to. And whatever time we had left after we finished our picture edit is what we'd cut the question and answer session down to. Cool. Got it. So there are definitely times where, um, you know, he, he had a longer answer and we trimmed it down. Um, uh, or for the sake of a little, you know, visual dynamism, we would, you know, cut from a medium shot into a close up, And as a result, we'd pull some stuff out of in between. Right. Um, but, but, you know, we'd send Jackie those questions beforehand so he could prepare answers. But I was there when we shot them for, uh, you know, a good chunk of them. And his answers were, you know, very much off the top of his head, his head as far as I could tell. Mm -hmm. You know, he yeah. didn't, he wasn't working off a script. He wasn't using cue cards. It was really, um, he had obviously had some, I, I'm guessing he had some exposure to them because he always had an answer ready, but I didn't get the sense that they were rehearsed. They're very charming. Before. They're very charming. So I do remember one Maybe it's a funny thing about shooting those segments one year. So one of the years where I, I didn't go out, I, we hired a crew to do it. Um, for whatever reason, that day, Jackie was wearing some kind of shirt that had a logo on it. Oh, yeah. And ultimately, we couldn't show that logo on air, but they had shot all the footage with him in the same shirt. So there's one year where he's like much smaller in the frame than usual. In other mm. words, it's not like it's not a, a, a waste up shot. It's actually really cropped. And that's because we had to crop out the logo right. for the shirt. Um, so there's one year where he's a little smaller on your TV. Than <laughs> right, because you did a whole season of, of that, right? We would, Yeah, we'd shoot a whole season's worth of questions in right. uh, a couple of days. And one, the first time I went, I think we shot everything in and around his offices and maybe one of his apartments or something. And then the next time, the second year, I asked him if we could go to a couple of different locations. So we went to, a, I think, a Hong Kong film museum and a park and maybe a, a gym he used. I remember we did a little more traveling that year too. Good stuff, Austin. Good stuff. Way to interview yeah. him. You're like a regular David Letterman over here <laughs> with all your letters. You're such a letterman. Uh, somebody, somebody got a, Somebody scooped up a few of those extra pieces of Ira glass <laughs> put them in a bag and named him Austin Bridges. <laughs> Oh, uh, one day we'll get those together and save him from his. I ordered a Terry torment. Gross. Uh, <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yikes! Yikes! Uh, okay. I I really okay. So I thought I I wasn't sure what we were gonna get out of this interview because you never know what people are gonna want to talk about. And I thought it was cool. I think the most important thing that we that in this first half that you you got him to talk about was being an executive producer. I never really like heard an actual executive producer for animation talk about what their uh, role is. And uh, turns out it's really a lot. 
I thought that was cool that, that he was talking about basically just sort of being the, the last call on literally everything. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because like, again, when from our perspective, just as normies, like we see the title card show up and they all just say executive producer. Dwayne Capizzi shows up as executive producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, John yeah. Martin you never know up. if it's that's just the way you're being paid or the way yeah. that like some sort Which of deal you've brokered or whether you're involved right. at the production level. It, it doesn't it doesn't mean the same thing as like senior engineer that you know has like sort of (laughs) real obligations that are sort of metered out and and met well right and show business titles are kind of like a weird magic hand wave anyway there's there's so much weird politics that go into that i mean i know in in movies and and in the way that people get credited and all that sort of stuff so yeah i mean it's kind of like a black box you don't know what's on the other side like what is that role what are your responsibilities so it's kind of cool i mean he talks about doing being basically involved at every level. And I think if I was in that situation, that's the kind of person, that's the kind of control or like involvement I would want to have. Right. Mm -hmm. Like you feel, you feel like you have some sort of ownership on it. It's kind of like, uh, it seemed like he was kind of the, um, you know, in in an office setting, kind of the regular boss, not, uh, Mm -hmm. not a head writer or an artistic director, but like the regular boss who does the, does what bosses do. Yeah. Handles, handles your, hand his business. Right. Guess it's the ship. Here's the ship. Yeah. Well, and it was also really interesting hearing, too, that the Jackie show concept was a prepackaged thing, you know, like, yeah, yeah. we had gone into this assuming that they'd sort of like reached out and sort of just bought his likeness the way we're accustomed to maybe from the <laughs> 80s, but from certainly from the <laughs> 80s and 90s of these sort of like famous people's cartoons who aren't really present in the cartoon. Now, granted, Jackie is present in the form of the Jackie says, but otherwise... Yeah. I I had a fairly I would I would call it an informed not a uh what's the word prejudice that uh somebody had just reached out to Jackie Chan and just offered him money to use the name Jackie Chan. Mhm. And I, I know. It, was, it was not the case. It's no. it's kind of cool to to sort of imagine, you know, being I I think it's a it, I mean, as Jeff said, it was sort of a, a shrewd a shrewd move. I mean, I th- I think he gets more into this in the second segment, but like Jackie wanted to expand his brand. This is such a cool way to do it to like build in, you know, youth support and like right. for and him, well, him had just come out very recently. He, yeah, he says he says that Jackie wasn't uh, wasn't a household name at the time, which I I I I I, I want to disagree with, but unfortunately I I haven't brought the data to sort of back anything <laughs> up. But that doesn't sound right to me. I remember Jackie Chan being a famous name when the show came out. Um, but maybe I was just that weirdo nine-year-old who loved Kung Fu movies. I, I don't know for sure. <laughs> I think you still are that weirdo nine-year-old. I'm telling you that weirdo now, for sure. <laughs> well, the fact that it was a hard sell. I mean, it was a hard sell to a lot of, you know, if if he was huge, I mean, this would have been maybe a slam dunk proposition. But the fact that they mm-hmm. got turned away sure. a lot of places sure. and then just had Warner Brothers be like, yeah, man, I get it. He was also, <laughs> the Warner Brothers guy was also a weird nine-year-old who loves Um, but i guess the part that should be perhaps underlined is like this was sort of a tactical move more than just a sort of like cash grab this was really jackie Mm -hmm. tran trying to branch branch out of uh action movies and deliberately as his uh you know as his bones you know one by one be replaced with um (laughs) you know with (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with a paper mache mold right. his slow transformation into life model life model decoy yeah yeah he probably didn't break a single bone doing jackie chan adventures which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is amazing uh so he also talks about ask jackie the ask jackie segments here 
um, which I thought was really interesting to hear that Jeff literally flew to Hong Kong to to film these. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I love his anecdote uh, <laughs> about the whole season they filmed because, yeah, they, they do a whole season in a couple days and where he's wearing a shirt that they that they had to crop out and i went up they didn't get the rights for the logo ultimately right right? yeah they couldn't clear they had they couldn't greek it or anything and so they had to just like cut around and so i looked up for that season i tried to find the video clips and it's bad it's really (laughs) like like they had to crop i mean i feel for him you know i mean they had to crop so hard you know the quality is is you know the video quality is you know like they had to stretch it as much as they could but it's like this little frame on a like you know 70 percent of it is is not video (laughs) because they just have his his face in like a little frame that's amazing yeah uh yes if you're we got part two of the interview coming up if you uh are sort of showing up here for the first time and being like oh i was here for you know a cool interview what's this podcast about who are these dudes uh i just want to point out we have Social media, we have a website. It's SaturdayMorningTuesdays.com or SadAmTuesdays.com. You can find us pretty much everywhere. We're on Spotify. We're all over the place. And we do have a Patreon if you're interested in supporting us so that maybe we can uh, get more of these sort of things lined up. Uh, So without further ado, uh, let's jump back into the second half of the interview. So as far as then the characters in the show and uh, just the general writing and the sensibility... um, did you have any sort of guiding philosophies or rules when you were making like the show Bible or deciding on how these characters were going to act and function? Yeah. So I think a couple of different things were driving some of the decisions we made. Again, one was we wanted to be fans of Jackie and his movies. And we wanted to give fans um, plenty to grab onto, but we didn't want to exclude those who really had no familiarity with it. So we needed the show to work for both. Uh, kinds of, of potential viewer. Um, so it couldn't get too in jokey, but we also didn't want to shy away from, you know, doing an action sequence that was completely a riff on something from drunken master, which mm-hmm. obviously we did. Right. Um, you know, we wanted um, to appeal to that kind of core six to 11 audience that most of the networks were going for at that time. Um, but we knew early on, we actually wanted to try to appeal to, as many girls as boys, which is why Jade was such an important character. Yeah. And philosophically, um, Dwayne Capizzi and I have always been on the same page about this, which is if you want to appeal to six to 11 year olds, write for teenagers mm. because every, everybody aspires to be more like their older brother, older sister, Absolutely. or somebody else older than they are. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to watch what those cool kids are watching. Um, so we never wrote down to that audience. That's brilliant. Um, number one, because we were trying to actually skew older so they'd want to watch it, but also because, I don't know, I always feel like they get it. You don't need, they, this is a generation, even then 20 years ago, they grew up on the language of television. They know how this works. You don't have to spoon feed them. They get it. And if there is some complicated story thing, because we did some pretty complicated arcs over the course of the five seasons that, that they don't quite get every detail of, they're fine with that as long as the core messages are getting through, the characters are fun, they want to hang out in this world, there's some action, there's comedy. You know, not everybody has to get everything all the time. Yeah, I mean, and um, the, and not, the choice and to By do the way, that. that's not the norm. No. You know, that's not really the norm of children's programming. There's a, there's a lot of children's programming, the feeling is you need to write to a, kind of a real baseline. 
and we never we never felt that way. We we tried to write it honestly, like God, if we could do a live action show with Jackie for primetime, what would that look like? Yeah. And in this case, it just happened to be animated, so we could do even wilder stuff. That's really what it where it started. Yeah. Well, and the choice to do a serialized story as well was uh, yep. not nowhere near where it is now. Uh, you know, as popular as it, you know, as it is now, obviously you were really kind of ahead of the curve on that. Um, you know, watching animation going from the eighties to intense serialization in the early two thousands, like it, it was a really cool trend to start seeing. Yeah. And remember that was at a time when you couldn't binge it. So right. you right. had to wait a week. You had to wait a week to see the next episode. Um, but again, now that's, there's a case where the network was up for that. You know, we decided we came up with the idea of doing the talismans, um, and it was all and based around the Chinese Zodiac calendar. And that was literally just because I think the first time Dwayne Kibizi and I sat down to talk about it, we were at a Chinese restaurant that had those menus that always has the Zodiac on it. You know, mm. you're a horse. What does it mean? Um, so I'm pretty sure that's where that grew out of. That mm. lends itself to a certain level of civilization. It doesn't have to. You could do just, you know, one-offs with each of those talismans. But we both like the idea of of having more continuity in it. And Kids WB was up for that, which was great. And, yeah. and again, as you said, not that typical. So as far as uh, the writing is concerned, uh, we were just really blown away by the quality of the humor um, and, you know, just the general quality of the writing. Um, and would you say that, uh, would you sort of put that humor behind any particular person or was it just the energy of the room or, or what? Uh... So I think it started with the fact that, again, John Rogers is the one who started, who, who instigated the whole thing. Um, and he's a really funny guy. And like I said, I'm pretty sure at some point in his career, he was a stand-up. Um, so that's number one. Yeah. Um, number two is, I think almost every show I've worked on has been a mix of comedy and action, in part because straight-up action, I feel like gets boring after a while. If it's just, and look, anything is possible in animation. So, you know, the idea that you have to keep topping yourself, if all you're doing is action... Um, I think it's exhausting. Yeah. Uh, I think that it's much more, you know, flawed characters who can laugh at themselves um, and who can be laughed at um, are much more interesting than, you know, perfect un- characters without flaws. So there's lots of, lots of reasons to do quote unquote action comedy. Um, but once John had sent a template and we all agreed and wanted to run with that, it's also, I mean, what else are you going to do with Jackie at that time in his career? Yeah. Like part of the appeal of his movies and his whole persona on film was he was not Chuck Norris, you know, delivering deadpan lines. He was funny. Yeah. And there and was a Chuck Norris cartoon. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's so, you know, really it's about it's So like if you're going to do a Chuck Norris cartoon, it's probably going to be a reflection on, if not Chuck himself, at least the persona he plays in the movies. Right. Right. Or, yeah. you know, the. Chuck Norris and Jackie Chan as characters, not as people, but as characters, were polar opposites right. to some degree. Yeah. Um, and so once we were doing the Jackie Chan show, it it, it was going to be funny. There was, and so um, look, I came out of primetime live action television um, when I started working in kids. I didn't know you were supposed to write scripts a different way, or that you were supposed to dumb them down, or or not have them be you know as mature or whatever. So I never learned that lesson. And since I'm in charge of the writing staff, ultimately, um, I never shared that with any of us. So we brought on writers <laughs> because they were really funny and really good. And like I said, we were writing the show like it was a primetime show. Um, so we brought on writers who were capable of that. 
the my circle of trust is pretty small. If you look at the thousand episodes I've done over the last, what is it, 25 or 30 years or so, um, there's probably a dozen writers' names who come up over and over again. And that's not by accident. Um, that's because we have a shorthand, but also because I feel like they are really clever and really smart and really funny. Um, and if it's fun to work with them, then chances are that's going to be reflected on screen. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, bits, not bits is not the right word, but uh, I guess a format that you were using was, I feel like every, there'd be a good joke at the beginning of the episode or, or just a, a, you know, a comment or something. And then 15 minutes later, there's like a one single perfect callback to that joke, right? You just, it's like a second, yep. second hit that uh, it's not three times. It's just that like second hit, 10 minutes, 15 minutes later, and it just kills. You know, I think that absolutely. And that's probably more Dwayne Capizzi in some ways. Mm. Um, but what, what, what's true of any, any show that works is it's not just about the writing. It's not just about the direction. It's not just about the acting. It all has to come together. And one of the reasons that I think Jackie Chan Adventures worked as well as it did is because you had Dwayne, for example, do something where he set up a joke at the beginning and then gave a great payoff 50 minutes later. Yeah. But then there's these moments, and I remember these so clearly, where like Toru is going to fall down the stairs. Okay. And so Dwayne probably writes or a writer under him writes, you know, Toru falls down multiple flights of stairs. And then one of the directors, let's say it's Dave Hartman, takes that and it's literally like a 45 second <laughs> sequence yeah. where all you hear is bang, 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 bang. You don't even see it. You just hear it. Yeah. And it's hysterical in part because of how absurd it is and how long it goes on. And again, having worked with Dave over and over again, as well as a lot of the people on Jackie Chan Adventures, like those moments where Dave will just cut to a reaction shot where nobody says anything <laughs> for like seven incredibly uncomfortable seconds. And there's just a eye blink or the screech of a hawk in the distance or something. Yes. And yes. it's really funny, but it's really funny because somebody brought that to it, that that was not in the script. And that's true mm -hmm. of the actors. You know, um, I always record what's called radio play style. So I like to have all the actors in a room simultaneously. We do a four hour session um, and we do it, you know, in, in order, basically. And I do that because I want the actors to be able to play off each other. And I want to be in the room with them as a group so that as, as ideas come up, we can play with them and try them. We got to, you know, I want the script to get recorded as is, but then assume we have the time. I want everybody to be able to kind of play with stuff. And when they're playing off each other, when you're actually in a room with another actor and it's not just um, you alone on a phone line, you get a very different level of, of um, input and, and, and sharing. Yeah. And so the actors, especially as they get more and more comfortable with the characters, you know, a lot of stuff will come from them too. So it's, it's the writers who are coming up with stories and then writing the scripts, but then it's also the actors. Then it's the directors, the board artists first who are kind of boarding out these moments and making them funnier or adding additional business that happened all the time, especially if we were riffing on an existing um, fight scene in a movie, for example, you know, the storyboard artists would watch that scene over and over and they'd play off it and play with it. Then you send your whole package of stuff to your overseas animation studio. And if you're lucky, those animators are adding and plussing, um, which is one thing. I don't know if you ever watched Transformers Prime, but if you ever listen to the voiceover 
the, um, the commentary tracks on those DVDs, I'm constantly talking about how Polygon, which was the studio that actually did the animation for us in Transformers Prime, those artists over there kept adding little bits to the characters and the behaviors that were fantastic. Mm. So it really is a, like, there is no one thing. It's everybody actually working together and it doesn't always work as well as it did on Jackie Chan Adventures. You know, nobody sets out to make a bad series, um, or, an, or an okay one. Everybody's trying to make a great one. Uh, it's just sort of is a, everything has to come together for it to, to rise above a certain bar. And in the case of Jackie Chan Adventures, it really did. Um, at least I think. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Last question here. Uh, I'm just sort of curious about the, um, the level of back and forth that you might have with Jackie or the JC group with whether it was with scripts or with, uh, final approval or notes, anything like that. So Jackie would come around, come out at the beginning of the season to do, um, some voice record stuff. We'd actually, you know, we were lucky enough to get him in the booth a number of times and we would just record as much of him, you know, the, all the sound effects stuff you hear, the punches, the grunts, the rolling, the, um, some of his more catchphrase stuff. Um, we'd get a ton of that, but also, um, we'd shoot some visual reference so the artist could have it to work off of with him. You know, how does he, when he's jumping up and down, what does that look like when he's doing something? What does it look like? Mm-hmm. So we had a surprising amount of access to him in retrospect. At the time, you know, I would have wanted more, but in retrospect, pretty much the biggest star in the world at the time, maybe not domestically, but, but one of the biggest stars in the world. And he would come out and we'd do that kind of stuff. And then he'd do publicity and promotion stuff for kids WB and, you know, he made himself incredibly available. He really did. Not to mention the times that we go over there to shoot the live action footage. So, um, really rare to have a star of that stature. Again, more in retrospect is the time when it was just, you know, wanted to get as much done as we can. But man, he was, he was huge <laughs> and he was doing a kid's show and yeah. he treated it like it was as important to him as anything else he'd ever done, which again trickles down to all the people working on the show. If, if Jackie Chan thinks this is important and this is a big deal and it's important to him to um, be appealing to this audience and not to talk down to them, then nobody on the show is going to want to do that. So that's, that's part one. Um, you know, initially, as we were de- developing the series further, we shared everything with the JC group. You know, Jackie had um, his management in Hong Kong. My memory was Willie Chan, no relation, um, who was kind of a big personality, loved Willie Chan, and so on. So who was more the the sort of um, almost businessy guy, but both really smart, really creative, plus Brian Gersh, his domestic person. Um, we'd send them everything, starting with core concepts in the Bible and then down to premises and outlines and scripts. I'm sure at some point um, it got to a point where we sort of had sign-off even if we didn't hear back from them because they came to trust us to that degree, which is where you want to get to. But we would always send them everything just in case. Um, I don't remember a lot of times where we got a pushback or Jackie didn't want to do this or didn't want to say that. I really don't remember that. I'm sure it happened, but that is by no means my memory of, of that show. I really thought that, um, you know, we spent time together at the beginning to make sure we were all in concert. And then we checked in with each other a lot. Um, but there was really at no point was there ever a, um, a, huge, a disagreement that I can think of in any meaningful way. That's great. Now it did, it did air also in China, right? I believe so. I mean, I believe it aired all over the world, actually. Right, right. And, and you know, had a second life. A lot of people um, may not know it from its original five-year run on Kids WB, but then it ran on one of the Disney channels. It was a Jetix. Um, 
for a long time. And I think, and that's a strip, you know, five days a week. So it really got a lot of exposure then too. Right. And there were video games and fast food tie-ins and all that. That's right. The video game. Yeah. So, and you know, everybody knows, I think by this point that Jackie didn't do all his own dialogue. Obviously there was no way for us to be able to record him. Right. Um, with him shooting movies. Um, and like I said, I like to have the actors in the room. So a really talented voice actor named James C. Um, did Jack, it's not even, it's not even like a straight up impression of Jackie Chan. If you were to ever listen to Jackie in the movies and play it next to James, it's not the same voice, but it was the same energy. It was the same sort of tone. Totally. Um, and I think that's why it worked so well and nobody really questioned it. I mean, the whole cast was just phenomenal. Yeah. And we had, you know, some really experienced people. The, the, in a, again, for my perfect world, I love a cast that's a mix of maybe some newbies and some really experienced voice people and maybe even a couple of more on camera people who haven't done a lot of voice work. And the reason for that is that then the level of competition is lessened. If it's a room full of just high level voice actors, they end up becoming a little competitive with each other. Sure. Um, sure. But if there's, but if there's some voice actors and TV actors and newbies, they're all a little bit in awe of each other. And there's a kind of this nice respect I find um, because the TV actors figure out pretty quickly that the guy who can do 30 different creature voices <laughs> is just as, if not more useful than they are. Yeah. Jim um, Cummings in the, the room, newbies, you know, forget it. Yeah, exactly. And the newbies aspire to be both. Right. So we had a really, we were really lucky with the cast of Jackie. Um, you know, part of it was we cast it that way, but, but just, you never, again, really know what you're going to get, but between, you know, um, people like Sab Shimono, who incredibly experienced, uh, Clancy Brown, Adam Baldwin, Julian Sands. It was even Susan Eisenberg came in to do Viper for that arc. Um, it was this really nice mix of people who'd done on camera, but not as much voiceover, a ton of voiceover and brand new. Yeah. Yeah. Pre Firefly, Adam Baldwin about to, about to blow yep. up. Well, honestly, Jeff, thank you so, so much. Um, and, uh, I guess this wouldn't be complete without a one more thing. Exactly. Well, yeah, just don't <laughs> whack me in the head with your, just don't whack me in the head, please. No, that, no. Oh, I, I, you just reminded me of one other thing. Um, at some point during the run on kids WB, um, as they tend to do, they hired, you know, some sort of consultant or something that kids WB did just to sort of look at their shows and make sure that the level of violence or whatever else, um, was acceptable. So whoever it was who was going to be making this presentation actually cut together like a 45 second clip of all the times uncle smacked Jackie (laughs) just one after the other. And of course the point of it was to show us that kind of we were, the show was maybe being a little more violent than it needed to be, but it was actually sort of hysterical as you watched it because it was just really funny. And of course we always played up the sound effect. It was always like this huge booming whack, 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 whack. Like a big Simpsons whack, you know, like a big, Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm sure the point of it was that, you know, this consultant really wanted either Kid WB or us to say, okay, we'll tone it down. Um, and instead, and again, it, this is really important. Everybody has to sort of be on the same page. I, I remember, I think it was maybe Donna Friedman who was overseeing Kid WB stuff at that time for us. She turned and she said, yeah, don't change that. I think that's <laughs> hysterical. <laughs> that's wonderful. I don't know about you guys, but that that supercut of Uncle Smackin' Jackie feels like it would have been just prime to use as actual promotional material. I, like, I no. think so. I know in a pre-YouTube world, 
uh, <laughs> that was prime YouTube content. And I tried to find it. I couldn't find anything like it on YouTube. Right. And I mean, I, I wonder I wonder how much it would have pissed off that uh, that analyst who came in just to sort of be like, look how violent you are. And then it's like, cool. Thanks for doing the work on this. We're going to air it as a commercial. <laughs> this <is fucking> hilarious. <laughs> yeah. I, I have to I have to like just like truly love it because so often um, studio executives are are responsible for ruining things. And um, in, in this case, there's a there, there's some sort of like overzealous censor really aggressive person has come in with a you know with a really detailed powerpoint about why the show is too violent and everybody was just like you suck that was awesome uh and a a story i think yeah i think we're all (laughs) i don't understand what your point is but that video was dope (laughs) yeah Yeah, i don't know i thought that that was really that was really funny i love i love that perspective i think my favorite chunk of wisdom from this section was uh was really when he talked about writing for when for for the the target that when you're writing for a six to eleven age demo uh right for teenagers and as a younger brother i feel that so hard like the the that aspirational uh desire in in younger kids and especially in that six to eleven like oh when i'm a big kid Oh, mm-hmm. I didn't quite have that uh, myself as an older brother and, and and kind of like my school was sort of bifurcated where I didn't have my access to many people, much, many people, much more than like one year older than me in elementary mm. school. Um, but I, I recently spoke to Andy about uh, about a game that was like, but I, it was it was more about how emblematic the game was of an era where like there was a time where video games so aggressively refused to hold your hand that you sort of had to literally ask an older friend or brother (laughs) for help. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. God, it's so, I mean, speaking, speaking personally, I'm, my brother is nine years older than me. And when we would consume content together, which wasn't all the time, right? I mean, because by the time he was getting into his teen years, I'm the uncool younger brother you know i was way cooler to him when i was a little kid and then when we were both adults but in that middle zone i'm kind of you know it's not as fun to be around the the like it's an awkward target to hit yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and so when we would consume content together it was turtles and and the x-men cartoon and i was into those things maybe earlier than i normally would have been or like more than i would have been because i knew my brother thought they were dope too and so, like, it really, it really, you know, touched on something that, that it works, felt right yeah. to me. It really yeah. works. And I can see even even the inverse being super meaningful. Like, if you imagine this coming on at three or four in the afternoon and this being the one show your older sibling will actually tolerate spending 30 minutes with you to watch. Yeah. <laughs> You're yeah. going to become a fan real quick. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, turn off turn off that baby shit, but let's watch JCA. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and the the thought of like, yeah, some of the old, the some of the higher, not higher brow, but like you know, higher minded, uh, advanced sort of serialization stuff that like, yeah, it might go over their heads, but like, that's where we want them to be, right? We want that mm-hmm. like, it might be like, yeah, it's one of those funny things. It's like it might be poo poo pee pee humor, but it's like from an adult's mind that sort of like it ages better, right? Yeah. Yes. Not that the humor is this is specifically poo poo pee pee, but just as a way of just kind of describing uh, a way of describing children's comedy written by adults and sort of written with a just a less of a 
aggressively talking down to you kind of tone. Mm-hmm. I was really hoping, so he, Jeff, Jeff talked about uh, sort of straight up action getting boring and that's, you mm-hmm. know, so you want to throw nonsense. in the comedy it's and stuff. Nonsense it's world. nonsense. Yeah, he it's nonsense. on the money. Exactly. Yeah. But for a second, I really thought maybe the discussion was going to tilt and maybe Jeff was going to start shitting on like action anime for a second. And I was like, <laughs> like Not my, my hackles got up and I was like, no. Ouch, <laughs> my anime. <laughs> Jeff Senpai, don't hurt my anime. <laughs> But no, 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 that, that wasn't what he did. He was he was shitting on nonsense. And I totally get yeah. that. Yeah, which we do all day long. <laughs> boy, boy, do we. The the thing that I liked most, uh, the that I, I sort of always intuitively knew, but like to hear him say it was really fun. Uh, and I'm sure not all cartoons functioned this way. Like a lot of them were run in totally different ways. But talking about how every artist at every step of the process got to add their own touches and sort of like yeah. embracing that and sort of loving that, like how the like the writer getting to do their thing and then the storyboarder and the director and the overseas animator and the voice actors all sort of getting a little bit of room to flex. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Is, I love that. I, I, I really, I really appreciate that. And sort of like having a, a, a showrunner sort of embrace that and not sort of go back and be like, I didn't ask you to put this in there. I'd appreciate if next time you consulted me, sort of like, a, you know, <laughs> accepting that, yeah, I've employed artists. They don't want to just do exactly what they're told. They want to have room to be creative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially those examples he brought up too of like, seven minutes of un- or seven seconds of uncomfortable silence, like punctuated by like an eye blink or a hawk screeching in the background is like, it's, it's funny yeah. just in description. Like that's just, yeah. you know, exactly. I love that. I love that shit. It reminds me of the, the, the scene, uh, we actually spoke about, um, where Jackie is, is running on the back of a train trying to, uh, get to the back as it's driving the other way. Oh and yeah. We, we cut spend to the, the majority of just watching the goons watching him. <laughs> <laughs> as they're just wide-eyed in disbelief as he's ah, 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 ah. it's uh, it's so funny he can't be human yeah. <laughs> yeah oh man it was cool that that technique of of not having of trying to not have all veteran actors or, or, or all veteran voice actors but having a mix of mm-hmm. like tv actors and voiceover actors and newbies and the way that they all kind of fuel each other. And like, yeah, I love the that that sort of humbling element of like some hotshot live action TV actor coming in and then seeing somebody like Jim Cummings in the booth or, uh, you know, uh, yeah. somebody like a seasoned voice actor and being like, oh, shit, I actually have a lot to learn. <laughs> I'm uh-huh. Well, that's just the part like, where you remember this is a real work environment and personalities yeah. can just yes. like become difficult and that he has to. Yeah. He has to make a choice about, let's say, absolute value of quality versus the, you know, practical quality you're going to get out of people constantly fucking, you know, tearing each other down and and not not cooperating. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And, and I don't know. I'm this is this little tiny anecdote is not is not by way of trying to blow my own horn. I know that that's, you know, I can already I'll, do I'll, that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm capable of that. Uh, but. I, I don't I, I felt that on a level because some of my some of my most some of my most memorable moments working in the theater, I, I guess I, one of them is I did a show one time and there was sort of a hotshot Broadway guy uh, in the cast. And at one point during the run, he like made a point to sort of and I was like nobody in the show. Right. I was ensemble. I was sort of 
you know, I mean, that's not like nobody, but but I wasn't a named character by any means. And at one point he came over and like made a point to find me on my own and was like, hey, I just want to let you know, like, you're really awesome. And you distract like it's distracting because I want to like in the middle of the scene, like I want to watch you because I think you're really cool. I think what you're doing is really cool. And I was like, that's like, I don't know. It's like, very like, nice. Sort of, like yeah. it's so nice. It's it's it nice to good. get it's nice to get like those those compliments and and in in so many ways I know it doesn't get me work because the people going to give me jobs are not the ones giving me those compliments necessarily because that's you know there's a whole bunch of like power dynamic but you know the comments from ostensibly your peers are the ones that mean the most and and you know you love getting those and and it's sort of it's nice to get the newbies in the room with the veterans because it can foster those moments too. Yeah. And I mean, and, and we, we talked about it already when we were discussing the show, but it was such a good move to have an actual young girl play Jade rather than oh uh, an God, a, adult voice actor sort of put on the kid voice like we've heard <laughs> yeah. a thousand times and is so yeah. awful. Uh, except, of course, Pamela Adlin, who is a constant <laughs> treasure. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. No, she's lest, lest we lest we say anything that could tarnish King of the Hill in any particular <laughs> way. <laughs> uh, or recess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, I thought that was really cool. I mean, kudos to Jeff. Jeff, I don't know if you're listening. Thank you so much. I know Rory and I didn't get to be a, a part of that, but I think that uh, we probably would have just derailed the conversation it's more a, than it's anything. It's a question of like chefs in the kitchen and having yeah. actual specific, you know, beat questions we wanted to ask. It, totally, it felt, it felt totally. more appropriate to have a one on one conversation and it worked. It, ter- it turned out really well. Did you hear my story about Broadway, Jeff? Do you hear my? <laughs> you heard that the Broadway guy talked to me. <laughs> Jeff Senpai, as long as you don't talk about anime and and in a disparaging way, I think don't we can hurt make a... anime. <laughs> what is anime? I, we've we've now invented this. Why do you hate anime, Jeff Klein? <laughs> uh, so so just to wrap it out, uh, Jeff also talked a little bit about the uh, upcoming projects that uh, he's got going on. So uh, I'd mm-hmm. like to to share that as well as a courtesy to him. Um, and you should yeah. check out his stuff. One more thing. I am working on a show that I can't talk about, of course, because okay. it's another big property and those things are always kept secret. Um, but for those who don't know, you know, in addition to my animation life, I have a comic book publishing company called Darby Pop Publishing. That's named after my daughter, Darby. Um, it's almost 10 years old now. Wow. We've done 20 different titles, I guess. Yeah, I'm, um, I'm up there somewhere. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You have some familiarity with it. if you. Would. Yeah. Um, so we've got a new book that, you know, should be in stores in May, but who knows with what's going on in the world. And, and you know, for the moment, at least most comic book shops are closed. But the book is called Necromancer Bill. Um, and it's uh, basically Pet Cemetery meets every Seth Rogen movie ever made. <laughs> uh, a regular schlub is um, accidentally given the power of necromancy. And um, <laughs> that both has a, an upside and a downside. Uh, so it's a really fun book. Tonally, you know, it lives in the world that I've lived in for the last 25 years, um, which is pretty consistent. It's very Jackie Chan adventures in some ways in tone, Excellent. Uh, if not a little more adult. That one's definitely more adult. Uh, and then later in the year, we're dropping a book called Lacey and Lily, which is our first um, very female-centric all-ages book. And it's about a little girl, a middle schooler, um, and her dog um, who find a pair of superhero suits in their deceased, in the girl's deceased grandmother's belongings. And when they put the suits on, they become superheroes. Cool. So she has to balance, you know, the boys at school with saving the world from insane fashionistas and all the rest of it. <laughs> awesome. Um, so it's a, pretty, it's a fun book and it's an all ages book. A nice companion to a book I did a couple of years ago called um, 
uh, Bruce Lee, uh, you know, the first actually authorized Bruce Lee book that I co-created and, and co-wrote with uh, Bruce's actual daughter, Shannon. That's Lee. right. So cool. That's you know, one of the other all ages books we've done. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jeff. This has been totally, oh, totally pleasure. awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, look, I love the fact that people remember the show. It's really nice. I, like I said, I have nothing but good memories of it. Yeah. If I could name everybody who was involved, I would. Um, but nothing is, I'll, I'll end it on this. That I was at a New York Comic Con a couple of years ago with Darby Pop and a group came up cosplaying as the characters from Jackie Chan Adventures. That's amazing. And it was fantastic. That's it caught me completely by surprise. Yeah. Um, and they looked the parts and they had the, you know, one of the things about animation is most of your characters are going to be in the same costume every episode because once you've designed them and drawn them, it's kind of a pain mm-hmm. to, to, you know, you may throw a different thing on top, but the core is still going to be that same sweater color and that same fashion of pants. Um, and they came dressed like the character and they were doing uh, scenes from the show. It was phenomenal. Mm. I loved it. That's amazing. That was so much fun. Austin, thank you for doing that. Rory, thank you for, you know, not doing a goddamn thing. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know so- what? Somebody's <laughs> Somebody's got to keep you to. Somebody's got to uh, not do it. Somebody's yeah, <laughs> and uh, yeah. If you if you like that, let us know. Throw us a whatever comment. Send us a fax. I don't know. Put a kiss in an envelope and send it via the post office so that we uh, can vote in November. Mm. And <laughs> and just write on the envelope to say you know. <laughs> and the post office should do their thing with it so yeah yeah exactly so everybody uh thanks for listening and we'll see you next tuesday